chapter 37. The weather was ideal for patrolling the streets. The officers who were doing this appreciated how pretty the village was, a tiny pocket of resistance against the march of progress abroad. A dozen photographers took snaps for the national papers. Their pictures would end up alongside stories about terror striking at the heart of rural England. Everyone loved to see the crooked houses and their thatched roofs, and not a scrap of litter anywhere, and flower pots on the doorsteps, and open windows with lace curtains swaying in the breeze. A few members of the press came across a cage in a window with a couple of canaries in it and lined up to get their pictures. Because all that tranquility was slowly being shattered, the best pictures were bound to be the ones of police officers with clipboards, two of them strolling by the pretty thatched cottage with the caged canaries in the window. P.C. Grisson had expected the villagers to be uneasy, sometimes shocked and tearful, or even the opposite, tight-lipped and unhelpful. She was good with people, always trying to understand. She called again at number 43, her clipboard at the ready. Nobody had been in the first time she'd called. She'd visited the other addresses on her list. Number 43 was the only property that hadn't been checked yet. Working through her lunch hour, P.C. Grisson had heard out the woman at number 41 and was beginning to feel peckish. She thought she'd call it a day, go get a bite to eat, and flag 43 as having been temporarily unoccupied. It was the end of a terrace of five cottages with neat front lawns. What caught Julia Grisson's eye now was the mud on the doorstep. She didn't think it had been there when she'd called at the property earlier. The woman from 41 was just popping out. A widow in her sixties, slightly overweight and fussy, the woman from 41 had a sturdy hemp sack slung over her arm and wore a wide-brimmed summer hat. She had previously explained that she'd gone to town during the bank holiday festivities in order to visit her mother in a nursing home. Hello again, she said. No one in? I can always come back, P.C. Grisson said. I think he's on the search party, the woman from 41 said. P.C. Grisson nodded. I thought it must be something like that. The woman from 41 was trying to conceal her embarrassment. It was such a warm day, with soft currents of air, almost a pleasure to breathe, and the people thereabouts really did prefer not to make any overt references to the horribleness of the bank holiday weekend. The topic was like a swarm of locusts still descending on them all. P.C. Grisson understood this perfectly and approached her work with just the right amount of tact. The less anything was mentioned overtly, the better. Nevertheless, it was a job that had to be done properly. Just then, the gentleman in number 43 leaned out of his second-floor window. He waved at the officer. He had a blue bathrobe on. He appeared exhilarated after his morning on the moor. I'll be right with you, he called. P.C. Grisson couldn't help noticing there was mud in the hall, too, all over the carpet, and boot prints going up the stairs. Mr. Figure had let her in, and had asked her to wait in the front room. The room was stuffy and warm, and underlit, considering how bright it was outside. The shelves were thick with dust. The books on them were tightly packed together. 
The only photographs of the gentleman and his family had an off-color tint, as if the family was no longer together, the officer thought. She drew a history book off the shelf, about Stalingrad, and slipped it back as she heard Rodney figure thudding down the stairs. "'I'm awfully sorry,' he said, sweeping in, making his entrance in fresh, casual trousers and a loud yellow shirt and leather loafers with no socks. "'Can I get you any refreshment?' "'No, thank you, sir. I quite understand.' Rodney lowered himself into a chair, laying deep furrows along his brow. P.C. Grissin wondered if he always play-acted like that, or was he nervous about something. He was trying to compose himself, but couldn't help fiddling with the hem of his trousers, then scratching his bare ankle. It really is quite abominable, he said. I'm a friend of the family. You are? The dearest people, he said. The officer took her pen out. We are here to take statements from everybody in the village, she said. Of course. I understand you were on the search party this morning. He shook his head. It's grim, he said. Such a sweet boy. She wasn't exactly suspicious, but P.C. Grissom couldn't help wondering why the gentleman had left the search early and why he'd trailed mud unnecessarily into his home. Her hunger slowly evaporated, replaced with a sense of intrigue. Of all the people she'd interviewed that morning, most of them had hardly been aware of Teresa Heller and her children. She began by confirming the gentleman's name, his date of birth, and his profession. With these preliminaries over, she questioned him further. Can you give me an account of your movements the day of the fair? Rodney rolled his eyes. He shook his head. There was so much. Where to begin, he said. Did you have breakfast here? P.C. Grissom asked. So they began with breakfast. Rodney was a two cups of coffee, toast, and jam man. He confessed he'd been watching his weight. After breakfast, he went off to deliver a quantity of buckets and sponges to the Heller's door. This was before rushing his car over to the garage to be serviced, never once exceeding the speed limit, he added primly. P.C. Grissom gave him a look. Buckets and sponges? For the celebrations, Rodney explained. Teresa organized the sponge throwing, you see. It was my task to make sure there were heaps of buckets and sponges. I must talk to her, poor thing. He actually half stood, as if he would like to have dashed to the Heller's place that second. This won't take long, P.C. Grissom said. She went back to the garage the gentleman had been to, wanting to know which one. And how did you get back here, she asked. I nearly didn't, Rodney complained. They promised me a lift and reneged. I had to make an enormous stink until Dan went off to get his wife's car. He drove me all the way back in a sulk. Good mechanic, terrible at customer relations, if you ask me. <laughs> Rodney gave a little bark of a laugh. P.C. Grissom decided he was altogether more nervous than charming. Even though every step was an effort, she drew him through the rest of his day, carefully noting what he said. He talked about his performance as a clown for the kids, then coming back to have a shower, then going out again to the Belfry Inn for a while, never once crossing Teresa Heller's path after that, nor those of her children. <laughs> he was very clear about this. The gentleman hadn't seen hide nor hair of them. 
He'd spent the entire afternoon and evening sampling the local brew with any number of others at the pub, and couldn't say he saw anything more suspicious than a tendency in the youth of today to sport too many tattoos. It took less than 20 minutes. P.C. Grissom thanked the gentleman for his assistance and apologized for any inconvenience. Rodney followed her every move, getting up after she did, opening the door for her, offering to shake her hand. As they reached the door, P.C. Grissom stopped and asked why he'd abandoned the search that morning. I was expecting a package in the post, he explained. I had to sign for it. Only just made it to the door as the postman was leaving. The officer nodded and thanked him again as she left. At last, Rodney was able to close his door and rest his head against the wall. He felt as if he'd just run a marathon. He turned his head and looked up the stairs. He couldn't help looking up the stairs. Taking the steps two by two, he made it back to his bedroom, winded and panting. His filthy jeans, the boots and jumper, were still in a pile on the floor. The empty box was on his bed. The brown wrapping paper had been torn away from it. The lid had been ripped off. A roll of discarded bubble wrap and a torn sheet from a recent edition of the Houston Chronicle lay scrunched on his sheets. The item the box had contained was still where Rodney had tucked it away, under his pillow. He got to his knees and slid it out, handling it as if it might fall apart. Had the officer come across it, he would surely have been arrested. It was a fully functional, vintage Luger pistol made in 1938. Chapter 38 There was one television on the ward, switched on throughout the day. The volume was usually off. It seemed to be permanently tuned to a news channel. I became good at guessing what the news was about. It was mostly the fiascos of global politics, the clashes of religious fervor, always peppered with plenty of images of desperate migrants. I wondered idly how my own homeland might be renationalizing in what seemed a weaker Europe than I could ever have imagined. I felt confronted by the icons of a new British rise, so rife on the television now, thumped home by a diet of commentators and politicos. I'd been living in the country for nearly 20 years. I'd come to think of England as home. But lying in a hospital bed with nothing better to do than recover, just seeing all those silent images made me feel more like an immigrant than ever. When I was told I would be discharged, I must have looked as lost as I felt. The day arrived abruptly. One of the nurses was good enough to call a cab and escort me to reception. She gave me a two-week supply of large pink painkillers and joked that I shouldn't resist using them just because I was a man. I considered myself weak and defenseless, but said nothing. My walk was more a defensive stoop. I made it, with the nurse's help, to the reception area. After that, I was on my own, with a constant headache for company and a heavy cast on my arm. Outside, I had to cover my eyes. I found I was sensitive to sunlight and rumbling car sounds. 
The near presence of others, and especially the proximity of their voices, made me flinch. After being closeted on a hospital ward, I was so unused to the flow of everyday occurrences, I could hardly answer the cab driver's stock of usual comments. On the stairwell to my apartment, I had to raise my good hand to the wall to support my weight. As I steadied myself in this way, stopping for a moment on each step, I made an effort not to breathe too deeply. Coughing, even clearing my throat, made me see and feel the flash of a well-aimed punch. An itch inside my cast was making me want to bite my arm off. I was feeling badly sorry for myself when I made it to the door. I leaned against the door, wishing with every cell left in my brain that Marie would be there to catch me when I stumbled in. When I finally did jiggle the keys the right way and stepped inside, I was relieved that no one was there to see me in the circumstances I'd been reduced to. It was like a tornado had hit all the rooms. I couldn't believe it was my own mess. Clothes, a cereal box, and old newspapers were strewn over the splotchy brown carpet in the lounge. There was a smell from the kitchen, like ammonia, and the windows were more grimy than I'd remembered. There were coffee mug stains stamped along the table. The table itself was heaped with documents. My laptop was still plugged in and charging. As I made my way to the sofa, the only refuge left in the room, I stumbled over a suit jacket twisted up on the floor. I stopped to stare at the wall opposite the sofa, vaguely horrified. I'd forgotten the photographs I'd pinned up there. It was made up of scenes of crimes pictures from an Indian restaurant in town. There was one of some blood drying on the pavement. There was a council CCTV still of two homeless men on a bench sharing a bottle of something between them. Since regaining consciousness, I'd been made aware of another kind of person in the stillness around me. A mind more free than my own, but too fragile to act. Being back in this place was making that person shrink away. Still gazing at the wall, I leaned against the table, shaking my arm to get my cast rubbing against the maddening itch I had. The table jolted, sending a pile of papers fluttering to the floor. They were the papers in a trial I'd been preparing when I was last able to enjoy the solitude of my hideaway in relative good health. My client had been drunk for years. He had so much booze in his blood he could turn psychotic on just a few gulps of strong lager. After that he would holler angrily at pretty much anything that moved. Over the years I'd been representing this man, the criminal justice system had been picking away at his life. His latest brush with society had involved three waiters. When the waiters laid hands on him, he became antagonistic, then racially abusive as they attempted to throw him out. He screamed ever more incomprehensibly and managed to stab one of his assailants in the arm with a fork he'd picked up. The injuries he came away with that day, cuts to his neck and arms, bruises to both eyes, were never explained in any of the witness statements. But of course, the half-man, half-beast I was acting for couldn't recall how he'd come by them either. Due to my hospitalization, I would have missed his trial. My client had wanted to argue that he'd been violently and unnecessarily ejected from the restaurant and that he'd only ever acted in self-defense. 
All he'd been trying to do was get a takeaway. At the end of this lost cause, the court would have heard a story about a man who had gone to a grammar school, about how he'd been a promising athlete in his day. He'd been happily married with two children and had a career on the railways, and how he'd contracted the disease of alcoholism and had lost all contact with everyone since. Added to his string of convictions would be a newly racially aggravated public order offence, being in possession of an offensive weapon, not to mention being in breach of his criminal behaviour order with its own punitive consequences. I imagine this wretch was already serving a years-long prison sentence, passed by some sombre judge, just so he could sober up and do it all over again as soon as he was back out on the street. In my depressed repose, in that long, hopeless moment, standing by the redundant display on my wall, I kicked the chair over. I was breathing heavily. I grabbed my jacket from the floor. For some reason, I decided to wrap it around my head until I was calm again. After a few more hours, tinkering at the edges of the abysmal condition my flat was in, I managed to acclimatize myself. I was comfortable enough to make the call I'd been putting off since I got out of hospital. I was aware I had to do this, or the squalor all around me would end up in my heart again. Doing it was a matter of absolute concentration. I was a blind man groping to feel my way forward. I dialed Marie's mobile from memory and was quickly connected to her voicemail. It's me, I said. I made myself believe she was listening. I wanted to let you know I'm out of hospital now. I waited and waited. It felt like letting go of something vital. I continued to listen for any sign of life at her end and listened for too long. I listened beyond what might be thought of as a reasonable period of time. Even before I hung up for something to do, I found myself picking up the remote and switching the television on. I suppose I needed the comfort of a voice any voice, to soak up the hurt I was feeling. I was rescued by a gardening special about composting. I forced my breathing into regular intervals, inhaling and exhaling through pouted lips, never averting my gaze from the screen as my new friend, the presenter, sifted through the food scraps in his kitchen bin. He had yellow gloves on. He was fingering lettuce leaves, wilted carrots, and used coffee filters as if they were the subtle ingredients for a fine meal. Soon I would fall into a deep and uncomfortable sleep with my phone cradled next to me.